Chapter One of Where the Path Breaks by Captain Charles de Crespigny. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline. Where the Path Breaks by Captain Charles de Crespigny. Part One The Awakening. CHAPTER One. ONLY THE DARK WHERE THE PATH BREAKS OFF AND THE MILESTONES END. IN DIM TWILIGHT A SPARK OF LIFE GLITTERED, GLINTED LIKE A BIT OF MICA CATCHING THE SUN ON A VAST FACE OF GRAY CLIFF ABOVE A DEAD GRAY SEA. THERE WAS NOTHING ELSE IN THE WORLD BUT THE VASTNESS AND THE GRAYNESS OF THE CLIFF AND THE SEA till the spark felt the faint thrill of warmth which gave to it the knowledge of its own life. "'I am alive,' the whisper stirred, far down in the depths of consciousness. Next the question came, "'What am I?' At first just that infinitesimal bright glint lived where all the rest was dead, or creation not yet begun. Then slowly the answer followed the question. I am I, a man. I was a man. I am dead. This is the twilight between worlds. I must dream back. I must know myself as I was. Later I shall wake and know what I am. The soul was very still, tired after an all but forgotten struggle. It was beginning to remember that it had suffered infinitely. It was patient, with all the patience of eternity before it. There was no hurry. Hurry and turmoil seemed strange and remote, part of some outworn experience. Lying still, it passively waited for the dream to begin. For a moment, or perhaps years, there remained only the gray blankness of the empty world. But the spark of life grew in brightness as a star grows to visibility in the pallor of an evening sky. Then suddenly a face flashed into existence. A girl's face. I knew her. I loved her, the soul remembered with a thrill like a shooting ray of the star that was itself. Where? Who was she? What were we to each other? The dream began to take on definiteness. The soul groped back to find its body and its lost place in the world. Not this gray limbo, but the sad and happy, the glorious and terrible world whence it had somehow passed. The girl's face faded away for an instant, and the face of a man seemed to be reflected in a blurred mirror. The eyes of the soul looked into the man's eyes and knew them, they were his own. He was that man, or had been. "'What a dull dog you are,' he heard himself say, as if he had said it long ago, said it often, and the echo had followed him to this twilit place beyond death. He thought the face was rather like a dog's, an ugly mongrel dog's. The girl could not possibly care for him. Yet someone had told him that she did care, and that she would marry him if he asked. "'I'm her mother. I ought to know.' 
As he heard the woman's voice speaking the words, he saw the face that belonged to the voice, the face of a pretty woman, young-looking, till the girl came near. The girl had come now. The cream and rose tints of her youth made the other face old. This was rather pathetic. He remembered that it had so impressed him more than once, yet he had never been able to like the mother. The dream was growing in distinctness. They three, he and the girl and the woman, were in a house. It was a beautiful old house in the country. Outside it was black and white with elaborate patterns of oak on plaster. A sheet of water lay so near that the black and white front was reflected in it, like a dream within a dream. The calm water was asleep and dreaming the house. And some great dark trees and clumps of rhododendrons were dreaming also, which seemed very confusing, and made him doubt whether there were any such soul as his, or whether, after all, he were only the spirit of the water or the trees, and had never known this girl who was walking with the ugly man. Yet it seemed to be the ugly man's house, and he knew what the man was thinking. They were one and the same, at all events in the dream. And though he was out of doors with the girl, he could see every room in the house as plainly as he could see the lake and the trees and the pink rhododendrons. He seemed to pass through each room, one after another, because the girl was extolling the charm of the house, and his mind moved here and there following her words, picturing her, white and flower-like against a dark oak paneling, or old brocade, or hanging of faded tapestry. Yes, it was a beautiful house. He had that to offer her, and money, too. There were women who would take him because of what he had to give. And there was something else. What was it? Oh, a title. Not much of a title. He couldn't believe she would be influenced by a trifle like that. She was too perfect, too wonderful. A great many men with nobler titles and more money must have asked her to marry them, or they would ask her in future, for she was still very young. So far she had never fallen in love. She had told him so. Not seriously in love, she had said, half laughing and half in earnest. There was only my cousin. I adored him when I was a child, but I haven't seen him since I was sixteen, and now I'm twenty-one. He was most awfully good-looking, and I thought he was a knight and a hero. Perhaps if he came back from India I should be disappointed in him. Queer that the groping soul should hold an echo of these chance words about India, though there was none for the name of the cousin, nor even of the girl herself. This made the awakening man wonder again if the girl had existed, or whether she lived only in his dreams. It was a vaguely sweet, vaguely sad dream, which seemed to have ended before it was fairly begun, with a very sorrowful ending which he couldn't quite recall yet. He wished to go on dreaming, and to change the end if he could. The girl and her mother were visiting the ugly man at the old black-and-white house. He, whoever he was, 
had to go away. He was begging the girl to stop until he came back. "'If I do come back,' he added. "'Your mother is willing to stay if you are. It would make me happy to think of you in my house, and if anything happens to me—' "'Oh, don't speak of such things,' she broke in. "'It's terrible that you must go.' This was very kind of her, because it was not reasonable that she could really care much, such a girl, for such a man, who had never been able to interest her, he felt. But she looked at him, looked up mistily with her dear eyes of smoke-blue. There was some message in them behind a glaze of tears. Drowned in those eyes, he heard himself stammering out things he had not thought that he would ever dare to say. "'If you could marry me, I don't suppose you could, but if—' Her answer did not come into the dream. Perhaps she had not answered. But he could see the ugly man holding out his hands, and the girl putting her hands into them. He could see her looking up at him again, and in the beautiful eyes there was that message she wanted him to read. There, at that place, was the end of the dream picture. It never went further, though he tried over and over to carry it on. The girl looking up, a tall, slender shape in white, with the afternoon sun burnishing her hair, and giving to it the color of a copper beech tree under which she stood. He knew that he had thought, I shall never forget her as she is now, not even when I'm dead. He had kept his word. He was dead, hovering on the borderland of the unknown, and he had not forgotten. But just where the dream ended, before he could read the girl's look and hear what she had to say, her mother had come quickly out of the house with an open book in her hand. That seemed to be the reason why the picture broke. It seemed afterwards, too, though there was no clear vision, that the girl was willing to marry him, just barely willing. Her mother took it for granted that she had said yes when he asked her, and the girl let it go as if it were true though he could not be sure it was what she had meant when she looked up with the strange light in her eyes and tried to speak. He would have given years of the future he hoped for then to have been sure, without any doubts. When he stammered out his questions, he had not thought of anything better than an engagement to end in marriage if he came home safely after the war. The war! Dim remembrance of hideous suffering suddenly stirred the slow current of his dream. There had been war. That was how it had happened. He had been killed in battle. Or else none of the dream was true. There had been no such man, no such girl, no such black-and-white house reflected in a crystal lake. This was a dream of things that had never been. A veil of unreality began to fall between him and the picture he had seen. No, it couldn't have been true of his life, of course, because the dream had begun again and was carrying him on to a wedding. The church in the village. He knew that church well and the way to it from the big gates and the little gates, the long way and the short cut. 
the girl and a man in khaki were standing together. The same ugly man, uglier than ever in his soldier clothes, he thought. He heard the words which a clergyman in a white surplice was reading out of the prayer book. To have and to hold till death do you part. And he saw himself putting a ring on the girl's finger. She held her left hand out to him, the long, slim hand he used to think must be like St. Cecilia's, because of the genius of music in its fingertips. He could see no following picture of her alone with him. He saw himself going away, waving goodbye, then a train and a boat, and a train again, with a crowd of other men, all soldiers. He was an officer. He had left the army before that dream time. He could not remember why, but it had something to do with money, and with the black and white house, and he had offered himself again for the war. In the dream he rode a horse along a straight sunlit road, with poplars on either side that gave no shade. There were days of marching in furnace heat. Then came a night of silver moonlight reddened by fire, a village burning. There was a noise as of hell let loose, and since he had been dead he hated noise. It was the one unbearable thing. Hearing noise in his dream, the star which was his soul shattered itself into a thousand sparks, each spark a red-hot nerve of pain. All round him in the crowded dream there was fighting. Smoke stung his eyelids. He breathed it in and choked. His horse trampled men down. Their cries were in his ears. Some voice he knew called to him for help. He pulled a man up on his horse, a friend he thought it was, someone he cared for. Now the horse stopped, reared, and fell. By and by the man whose soul dreamed struggled to his feet, dazed, but remembering his friend dragged him from under the hurt animal. Helmets glittered in the moonlight. Eyes glinted red in the copper glare. He fought with a sword and kept off men that pressed on him and his friend, trying to kill them both. A stab of pain shot through his hand. A bugle sounded. Men were running away. He thought they were men of the enemy, a stream of helmets going. He heard his own voice shout an order, but before it could be obeyed, a din as of mountains rent asunder roared his voice down. His whole being was swallowed up as a raindrop is swallowed in a cataract. A huge round shape rushed towards him, black against moonlight and flame. Then the world burst and tore him in a million fragments. His soul coming back to knowledge of its continuance held the impression that this rending anguish of death had been long, long ago, thousands of years ago in time, and that he was now, or soon would be, waking into eternity. The breaking of the dream and the pain he had suffered ought not to seem important. It ought not to matter to a disembodied spirit. Yet it did matter terribly. 
Most of all did it matter that the girl with the smoke-blue eyes and copper-beech hair had been swept away from him forever. She was somewhere in the world he had left behind. He did not even know her name, or whether indeed she had really been in his life. Henceforth he would have to wander through space and eternity without finding her again. The man groaned. "'He's coming round at last,' a woman's voice said. The voice sounded muffled and far off. It sounded harsh, too. It was not a sweet voice, and it was not speaking his language. Through the gray dimness which hung over him like a cloud trickled this impression. He wondered why, if the language were not his, he should understand what the voice said. "'German,' he struggled to say, and succeeded with pain in whispering the word. Somebody laughed. "'He knows he's in German hands,' chuckled the same voice. An agony of regret fell upon him like an ice avalanche. He was alive, then, whoever he was, and there had never been a girl with smoke-blue eyes and copper-beech hair. She was only a dream. That must be so, because the words she had said to him were all gone from his mind. He could no longer remember anything about her except her face, and those eyes. Those eyes! His interest in past and present abruptly ceased. He let himself slide away into blank oblivion. End of chapter 1 Recording by Roger Moline